This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you all for having me here. It kind of feels like home because there's so many personal friends in the room that uh, I have long-standing collaborations with. So thank you for uh, having me here today. Um, I like you to write the words, I will down. I will. And at the end, we'll have a conversation about what we might do of it because there is a huge problem in healthcare that only we are going to solve. And what I'd like to cover with you in the next half hour is what are some narratives that are holding us back and what are some ways we might move forward. And in this narrative, I want us to reflect on the power of story or beliefs. You see, stories are the most powerful force for change in the world. They either pin you to your current performance or they propel you to new pinnacles because stories define how we act. Stories like JFK saying, I want a man on the moon and back in 10 years, or Martin Luther King nonviolence protest, or news stories that are going on in our federal government now. Right? You change the story, and you change everything. And if you want perhaps the most compelling demonstration of the power of changing beliefs, it's in the story of Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile. I like this story because I'm a runner like many of you, but... That record of breaking the four-minute mile stood for 2,000 years, and leading scientist at the time, 1956, at Hopkins, at the UC system, said, you will die trying. It is physiologically impossible to do it. Well, when Bannister broke it as a medical student, go tribe, he didn't die, and some of you may know that. But what is often untold is the next year, this 2,000-year-old record, 12 people broke it. The year after that, 156 people broke it. And now high school kids in California are breaking this record routinely. And what changed? Not blood doping, not evolution, not new sneakers, like my kids say, was their belief. And what Bannister did was free up all of us to break that four-minute impossibility. And folks, we have some dysfunctional narratives that are holding us back right now. But perhaps what's most compelling is the narrative that federal policymakers are saying about us. You see, what they say is, we've highlighted this used quality safety cost problem. And you, we didn't step up to the plate. So we're going to take a nickel out of your pay because we're going to make sure that you care now. We're going to try to motivate you through an economic incentives to say, please focus on quality and safety. And as you all probably know, the data that that's impacted quality is pretty limited. It certainly impacts the quantity of care people buy as you change financial reform. It does preciously little for the quality. But we can't blame them because what do we know about the stories we face? Well, sadly, we don't know how many people died needlessly from errors. The estimates are from about 40,000 to 400,000. But the mean of all those estimates is around 200 to 250,000. A huge problem. We know about a third of all the people who interact with healthcare leave saying, I'm not respected. You didn't listen to me. And we know we squander about a third of every dollar that we spend on health care that doesn't get patients well. That's about a trillion dollars. But like many of you, most of your hospitals, you serve an urban population. That trillion dollars 
translates into about $10,000 per family in America. That's the net worth of the average family in East Baltimore that you may have seen on the news during the civil unrest in, in Baltimore. And so that's money that could be far better put to use for STEM or preschool education or job training that we might as well just burn. So what is keeping us back from this? Well, I'd like to explore with you three narratives and counter-narratives that are driving us. The first is we still accept harm that is inevitable rather than preventable. You see, the growing data of preventable harm isn't mean things are getting worse. We just stopped labeling all the stuff that we said is inevitable, and now we say, no, it probably, it probably is preventable. So the, the number looks growing, but we still don't really believe that it's preventable. My tribe, especially the physician, doesn't believe it. Second narrative is that we view quality as a project rather than a disciplined management system. We play whack-a-mole for the hundreds of measures that we have to collect, but we don't have an integrated approach that breaks down silos to do this. And we still rely on the heroism of our clinicians to keep us safe rather than the design of safe systems. And we buy and pay outrageous amounts of money for clunky and clumsy technology that I think we have to start buying better. So let's explore how we might change those narratives. And first one I'll share with you began, like so many of our narratives, out of personal failings and shortcomings. You see, on a snowy night in Baltimore in 2001, this little girl, Josie King, was taken off of life support and died in her mother's arms. She, she was burned, and the clinician saved her, but on the day she was going to go home, a catheter infection sacrificed her. And at the time, we just accepted those, I accepted those as an intensive care physician, as the cost of doing business. We just accepted that sometimes little girls like Josie are going to die. And she did. Well, her mother came to us and said, could you tell me that this will not happen to my other daughters? Could, could you tell me that care is actually getting better, that my daughter didn't die in vain? And the sad reality at the time was I had to say no. I wanted to say yes, but I had no theory. I had no data. Our rates were sky high. And so I said, no, I, we can't, but we'll give you an answer. So what did we do? Well, we started, which at the time we didn't know was radical, thinking like an engineer by declaring a goal of zero infections. As you know, most of us think like biomedical researchers doing is A better than B. It takes a long time to solve problems that way. Right? It's really good for solving puzzles, not so good for solving a problem. Declared a goal of zero infections. My colleagues thought we were a bit crazy. We made a checklist of best practices, took a 150-page CDC guideline, called it down to five items. We made it easy to use this checklist. We got doctors and nurses to work together. We fed data on infection rates back into the system and created accountability mechanisms. And we created structures for peer learning, doctor and nurse learning together from hospital to hospital. And lo and behold, these infections now across the U.S. are down 80%. It's one of the few success stories we have since to err is human. And to put this into perspective, these infections, they say, hey, what's this ICU thing? They seem kind of trivial. They used to kill as many people as breast or prostate cancer. So let's not think of this as this little harm. Think of potentially finding problems the size of breast cancer or prostate cancer that the cures are in our midst. Well, it worked 
on a policy level, because we had good measures, we've underinvested those, we had good basic and clinical science to know what to do, we've had investments from ARC and others on implementation science, and most importantly, we worked together to do this. When we started this effort, our federal agencies had about seven different measures of bloodstream infections. Some said it was getting worse, some said it was getting better, some said it really wasn't a problem at all. We had no way to align how we were doing these, and so we put a lot of work grouping these together. But because of the impact, we got curious and said, there was more going on than the checklist here. What really drove this? So we bored a technology, something I want to discuss later with you, about exploring this in the UC system from the nuclear industry called peer-to-peer -peer review. You see, after the Three Mile Island accident, the CEOs of the nuclear companies got together and said, if there is another nuclear disaster, the public will not tolerate nuclear power. We are done. And the regulators, though they're important, aren't going to solve this problem. It's ours. So they started an organization called WANO, the World Association of Nuclear Operators, that started doing peer-to-peer -peer review. One nuclear facility goes, visits another. And they have no regulatory authority to punish. So it's a culture of learning not judging, but it's ruthlessly honest. I'm on their advisory board. So we said, well, could we do that in healthcare? Could we go into a hospital that was zero and not zero and see what's different? Because I think it's more than just handing out a checklist. Because if it was just handing out a checklist, we'd all be thin and have full retirement accounts. So we went in there, and what did we find? We found that there were four really explicit things that if in the organization did this, they performed remarkably well. Number one, their leader declared and communicated a goal of zero harm. If I walked in and spoke to that CEO and said, Mark, what, what's your infection rates? You, you know, Peter, my infection control person's got it. I think we're on top of it. Guaranteed they weren't zero. The one that was zero was said, Peter, our goal is zero. We've been 400 days without an infection, and I communicate to all of our staff that that's our goal. The ones that were zero created an enabling infrastructure, this coordination team. That is, they provided the frontline staff with project management, with improvement science, with training and analytics all in one. They didn't make the frontline docs and nurses go shop around about who's got the data, who's going to support me. They supported the frontline clinicians. But the work was led by frontline clinicians, and they created structures for peer learning. Because that's where the real power comes. Me looking at another hospital and says, wow, how'd you get that low? I could do that. And finally, they transparently reported and created accountability. That is, if someone wasn't performing well, we didn't just say, oh, keep trying. We looked and asked and tried to sort out the problem. But we thought there was still something deeper. That those things are great, but when you were speaking with clinicians, something changed in their heart. And so we partnered with some anthropologists to find out what went on in their hearts. And when you interviewed people, you can see in their eyes what they believed in their hearts. They started telling a new story. You see, when we went into this routinely, and Michael and Hilly were, were a big part of this, we all used to say infections are inevitable. And what got them to zero was that nurse at the bedside said, no, no, they're preventable and I am capable of doing something about it. I am no longer going to be disempowered and feel like a cog in the wheel. I will solve this problem. And when that narrative changes, you don't need a checklist. They'll figure it out. The magic wasn't in the checklist alone. It was in their hearts. So we got curious and said, well, what helped change that narrative? Because if you could tap into that, 
you have one of the most powerful forces in the world. And what we found was what changed that narrative were two simple things. Some leader or somebody believed in them. Because as a front, I'm a practicing ICU doc, and my days as an ICU doc are often pretty miserable. I mean, you, you feel like you're a cog in the wheel. There's not a lot of joy. And to have someone come up to you and say, we believe you can get to zero infections. And when we spread this program, the messaging was really key. It was never, ever, look how good we are. It was always, look how good you could be. You're smarter than us. We can do this. No reason you can't be. Second thing is we created structures where people belonged. They belonged to peer learning communities. So you can get this energy. And it's one of the things you were just talking about in the last presentation, how we don't have structures in big complex organizations for this peer learning and we need to spread it. Now, we walked away from there feeling pretty good until I met the mother of another a little girl who died actually in a California hospital, not one of yours, who said to me, Peter, why is it fair that you could look Sorrel King in the eye and say her daughter's less likely to die, but my daughter died the same week as Josie and is just as likely to die today? I don't know if we have any engineering in the room. This little girl had elective orthopedic surgery, was getting pain medicine, a known side effect, it slows your breathing. We have monitors to count your breathing, but oops, we buy them from the vendors who say you can't connect the APIs and they don't talk. So we give a lethal medicine with no control system and she, like thousands of other, die from narcotic overdose every year. So we walked away from that description and said, I think we're thinking about this all wrong. We're not going about it right. If we were putting a satellite up, I was speaking to some of our engineering colleagues, and it can blow up for 20 reasons and call reason one a clabsy, and it didn't it didn't blow up for reason one, but it still blew up. Do you think anybody would be patting you on the back and say, oh, good job, Peter. That reason one didn't get you, but mission still blew up. And that's how we're approaching quality and safety, that we have to start saying, how do we eliminate all harms? So we formed this institute with that goal to say, could we design a health system that partners with patients, their loved ones, and others, and others is broad, regulators, private sector, public sector, to end preventable harm, to continuously improve their outcomes and experience, and to eliminate waste, laserly focused on a purpose. We also agreed on key principles of behaving, that whoever wants to be part of this team, and we invite everybody, we have to commit to saying we are humble, curious, and compassionate. We respect, appreciate, and help others, and we're accountable to continuously improve ourselves, our organization, and our communities. And from this, there's a set of management objectives that people are judged by and how they perform and how they're evaluated by adhering to these principles. I'll give you an example. The humble piece is every manager has to go twice a year to another organization or industry, go visit them and write back, what did you learn and what are you going to implement in our organization? As part of their annual review to create a culture of learning and improvement. Now, we knew we wanted to draw upon all different disciplines, and we used this idea that Laura and I were talking about last night about transdisciplinary research. The idea is pull different disciplines together, align them so you could pull multiple levers to move the needle in a big way. Too often we stay in our own mental model, so if I'm an economist, I pull economic levers. If I'm a sociologist or an IT, I pull those levers. They give you a little bit of risk reduction, 
but they don't solve problems in a big way. And if we're going to think like engineers to say, I want to end harm, we needed to bring different disciplines together. And so we literally just made a grid of clinical disciplines as columns, methodological disciplines as rows, and invited the university to come. We did mixers with the various schools, and so now we have every school in our university and 18 different disciplines all working together on these kinds of problems. And we turned to these ultra-safe organizations called high-reliability organizations to learn how they do this. These are organizations like an aircraft carrier that perform with a remarkable degree of safety despite really hazardous and dynamic conditions. And healthcare is starting to focus on this, and we wanted to understand it in a deeper way. So I visited an aircraft carrier, and when I was speaking with them, I was frankly whining about how hard it is to do this when you have residents who change every month and all the payment problems in healthcare. And the commandant literally said, Peter, stop your whining. Let me share you what my world is. We have a ship the size of a football field that pitch 30 degrees in the waves. We land every three seconds. A ship, a plane with enough bombs to blow them all up. They have about two feet of margin of error at the end of the runway, maybe six inches on either slide, and it goes flawlessly. And your residence, Peter, we change our entire crew every six months because they can't be deployed that long. Our average age is 18 and they don't have high school degrees. So stop whining and start leading. <laughs> I was quite humble. <laughs> I Standing next to this commandant was a guy sweeping the flight deck. Now, that job, much like the people who clean our rooms or the bathrooms, are really important because if there's a debris on that flight deck, the plane will crash. Like if there's MRSA or C. diff on our hospital rooms or our clinic rooms, someone gets infected. And I asked that gentleman what job he does. What job he does. Any guesses on what his answer was? He stood up, looked at me proud, and said, Sir, I help planes take off and land safely to serve the mission of the United States of America. I left that visit and walked into our environmental services workers. Same important role. And I asked them, what job do you do? What do you think they told me? I cleaned the bathrooms. Right? And that, my friends, is the leadership failure that we haven't engaged on on this high-reliability journey. You see, these high-reliability organizations have two preconditions for their existence. Number one, they have a profound respect for everyone in the organization who does work, for the frontline workers. The, the wisdom isn't in us as managers. It is in those people doing the work. And the leaders see their job is to make sure everyone in the organization would answer yes to these questions. I am respected every day by everyone I interact with. I have the resources I need to do my job with meaning, and I am recognized every day for the job that I do. I, sadly, I would say it's probably the minority of staff at Hopkins that would answer yes to that right now. I suspect it might be the same in your system. The second thing they do is they have a hunger to learn and improve. Everyone in that organization comes thinking they have two jobs, the job they were hired to do and the job to add more value to their organization, in our case, to the patients that we have the privilege of serving. And they do this 
by operating under two logics that at times seem odd and conflicting, but we have to navigate this. Number one, they standardized work whenever they could. And Talmadge and I were talking about lean and how we're under-standardized. We need to put in standard work. But they also recognize that you can't standardize everything. Indeed, some of the benefits from quality are from recovering and building resiliency to recover from mistakes. And we have to live with that logic. The way we phrase it, I try to phrase it, is in healthcare, we need to drive out mindless variation. That's variation because I'm a department chair, I'm powerful, and encourage mindful variation. That is variation because I have a hunch. There's some biologic reason. I want to learn. But that mindful variation incurs an obligation to learn and improve. And it's living those two logics that we're going to have to begin to do it. Now, we dug deeper and said, okay, it's great to have that theory, but how do these organizations really do it? And the way they do it is they don't view quality as a project. They view it as what they call an operating management system. So if you go to oil and gas, if you go to the NASA, if you go to an aircraft carrier, they literally have a playbook that says, how do all these pieces fit together? And so we've tried to begin to walk through and say, what would an operating management system at a complex health system look like? And it looks pretty scary at times, but what you'll see is that there's a methodological and disciplined approach that we walk through this journey. The first question we asked is quite simply, does our board quality committee function like our board finance committee? What do we mean from that? Is We have line of sight oversight for every dollar that's spent in the UC system. Could you name who the accountable leaders are in your delivery system from board to bedside? When we started this, the answer was not even close. We had eight ambulatory surgery centers that never talked. We had 85 primary care groups that some were university-based, some were in private practice, no structures to do this. Second question we said is, okay, just like you have a consolidated financial statement that flows up from your ledger to a board meeting, could you say the same thing about the quality and safety of care? Could you literally map and make sure you don't have any islands of quality? And what that discovered, my friends, was unbelievable. So William, Julie will know this. We had, for example, we found our PEDS surgery measures went nowhere. The adult surgery program said, oh, they're PEDS, they don't get reported. The pediatrician said they're PEDS, they were doing stuff, but there was literally no accountability for them. Same thing for our GI endoscopy. They were kind of proceduralist, so medicine didn't do that, and we just uncovered these. And then we said, do we have this structure to make sure we could support both peer learning and accountability. And this is probably one of the most important lessons that we came away from this work. You see, in all of this efforts, we learned that change progresses at the speed of trust. Really key concept. And trust grows when you do things with rather than to people. So this governance structure that we created wasn't about formal reporting and it wasn't about doing things to people. It was creating structures and a culture where people had a voice to co-create. And we literally just cascaded this down the organization. So we started at the Johns Hopkins Medicine level and divided the health delivery system into hospitals, home care, ambulatory practices, ambulatory procedure, international, and our managed care company, and said, okay, we need a point person for quality to oversee all of that. And then each of those had to make sure that anywhere that type of care was delivered, they had a voice at the table to create benchmarks. And if the table got too crowded, make a new branch. 
So our ambulatory practices, people said, Peter, there's 80 practices. We can't do it. I said, okay, organize into regions, but you need to make sure you hardwire a structure for trust building from board to bedside. And this probably took us three years to begin to map out and, and build and agree on dashboards. And we created accountability, but we modeled it on this idea of shared leadership accountability. So accountability in healthcare is either absent most often or turns into shaming where you don't give someone resources and yet you say, okay, why are you having this, these infection rates? And the person says, you know, I'm a neurosurgeon. What do you want me to do about it? I don't have any resources. How am I supposed to do it? And so what we built into this is the idea, very simple rule. A higher level leader in the organization could only hold a lower level leader accountable if they first hold themselves accountable to set that lower level up to be successful. What does that mean? Is that means that lower level knows their goal, they know the role, they get feedback, they have the skills, and they have the resources to do it. And if those answers are no, then the accountability discussion goes up to that higher level and says, okay, either it's not important, we don't have budget, the measure's not good, but it's your conversation. And we defined an explicit accountability model, just like you do if you miss your budget for escalating periods of time, you end up in a higher level office. We have people missing their quality and safety measures routinely that never get escalated. We say, oh, keep trying harder, but your HCAP scores are pathetic like a railroad track. So what we said is for all of our measures, here's what the deal is. You miss your mark for one reporting period, your local president of that entity has to sign off and say, I have a plan. Two reporting periods, that local board has to sign off on your plan, and it comes to our Johns Hopkins Medicine review that you present it to a Johns Hopkins Medicine Committee. Three reporting periods, we go in, we meaning my institute, and do a peer-to-peer review where we say, okay, is it you're under-resourced? What's going on here? The measure's not bad. And then that's shared at our board meeting where we um, present it. And we've organized our work because just to give you an idea of the complexity Johns Hopkins Medicine, through all our different companies, reports 1,200 different measures that I'm responsible for. It's ridiculous. But when I asked our doctors, and Julie was part of this when she was at Hopkins, what are you most worried about? Very few, if any, of those measures were on their list. And so we needed a way to make sure we broaden the focus so we have an explicit category of safety. That's just our internal risks. What is it that clinicians are worried about? We group them into risky providers, risky units, and risky systems. We then have to manage the external measures because we have three times our margin at risk now and pay for quality, and that's likely to go up, and reputational risk, even though it may not be as important, needs to be managed. Our patient experience work, our value work, which is our reducing cost, and then our healthcare equity work. So are we giving the same care for whoever you do this? And we are supporting these clinicians through a variety of different infrastructures that include lean, learning and development, so all the training, analytics, our researchers, where we, as Laura and you were mentioning earlier about a learning health system, essentially what it means is you break down the silos between research and practice. Research isn't this little box separate from, it's integrated, so we embed a nurse researcher, a human factors researcher in these teams to try to up their game, and also the researchers get more practical experience, and then a variety of other strategic uh, partnerships. 
Second idea is, do you have ways to identify risk throughout your organization and creating the structures to do this, whether that's a reporting system in our group, and I know we're doing this with UCSF, unit-based safety teams called CUSP teams because that's where the wisdom is, and do you have this? Do you have the right training and infrastructure to do this? I'll give you an example of how breaking down silos. And most of these, by the way, were no new infrastructure. They were simply eliminating walls. There wasn't really a lot of margin, frankly, very little of any marginal cost. We found one of our ICUs had a blip in infections. And so we went in and did a peer-to-peer -peer review and found out what happened. Well, we found that many of our new nurses out of orientation lacked basic knowledge in catheter maintenance. You said, how could that possibly be? I don't get it. Well, as you, that, this team who does that was in nursing totally separate from quality. We used to have a really robust infection prevention in our orientation, but with Epic, it got cut down from two hours to 10 minutes because Epic sucked up all the lifeblood out of it. And so not surprisingly, we did this. And, so, and we did the same thing with our resident orientation. It wasn't just a nursing. So what did we do? We went to both of those leaders of that program and said, here's the top 10 reasons why people are harmed in our health system. You need to make sure that when our nurses or our residents come out of orientation, they're skilled in how to prevent those. You have to own it, but you have to lead it towards this harm reduction, right? So it's not this siloed whack-a-mole. It's all aligned towards harm reduction. We also defined explicitly competencies for quality and safety. So we said, what does every employee need to know about teamwork, safety, safety culture? It's a series of modules, and now we're about 95% of the way through. We've trained 24,500 people on this. We have a second level is, what is every manager who devotes some, but not all of their time for quality and, and safety need to know? And that's a certificate that we have. It's a five-day, some lean, some human factor, some safety culture. And then the top tier is, what are those people who devote their career for it? And that's typically a master's or a doctoral degree, but some higher level formal training that we built uh, uh, in, into this. Fourth element is, do you have transparency and teamwork and again, th these slides will be available, and then as the, the references, you'll see how we put these in at Hopkins. But let me give you an example about this teamwork stuff. One of the hallmarks of these high-reliability organizations is that they build trust with their upstream and downstream suppliers. In healthcare, not only is there no trust, they're often the enemy. So I'm an ICU doc, and the OR will view our ICU team as literally you guys are just delaying patients, you don't want to let them out, or the floor will say the ICU or the PACU is dumping on them, and there's this, I mean, we don't even see ourselves as a team of teams, it's actually conflict, there's absolutely no trust. And I was sitting on one of these CUSP teams, and they were complaining about a handoff, and I asked the question, do you have a structure to resolve this conflict, or do you just bitch about and complain about them? And the answer was no, there was no, they don't even know the people, but they were all willing to blame, and they were always, which I go to this humility thing, they often approach problem solving is, well, if that ED would just do what we tell them to do, we'd solve all the problem. And I'd say, well, don't you think they see the world through a different lens, or if, if the ICU would just do this? And one of the things we found was that in your health system, there's highways, that if you look at through your admissions, there's flow patterns that 80% of the who a unit connects with ours, there's a neurosciences flow that might be a, a, you know, an ED, and a, a set of ORs, a PACU, an ICU, several floors, but they never talk. So we now have exploded this cusp idea, what we're calling cross-team cusp. 
that we link the cusp leaders of each of those highways and get them to know each other. And we begin simply by building trust, by having them say, what do you think the other units need from you? And write that down. And what do you need from them? And just facilitate a conversation about, okay, I need you to do this. And it's amazing the disconnect that we uncovered. But those are the kind of things that we're going to need to get to this high reliability. Because if, if I were to say the, what summarized the last decade of quality, it was process. Lean process. High reliability is going to be about structure and culture. It's a culture of accountability, a culture of trust, and structures to support these peer learnings that, uh, that exist. And then finally, how are you doing innovation and insights? And I'll give you one example that we did. There was some fascinating data from the UK that units or clinics that are low on employee engagement, safety culture, and patient experience have much higher mortality and cost than other units. And, and yet we've never proactively identified those units. And we had an event that we paid a, like a $190 million lawsuit from some inappropriate behavior that was in the press. And we said, well, could we proactively identify risky units? So we triangulated these different data sources. We never did it. We went to the department directors of the hospital presidents in our community hospitals, showed them their data, and say, this unit is risky. What are you going to do about it? And by the way, we're sharing this data with the board in a month, so I hope you're going to have a plan to how to address it, because they're going to rest assured ask what you're going to t talk about. And every one of those, the answer was, you know, Peter, thank you. I knew I had a risk, but I needed some cover. Because as a department chair or a hospital president, it was really hard to go in and make these changes because I didn't have any evidence. But now that I have it, sure, let's go make some leadership changes. We've done that now for 92 units. We just published a paper. 89 of them saw significant improvements in their safety culture by simply calling them out, and most of them made some leadership changes. I want to spend a few minutes talking about what we're doing for value on these clinical communities because it is probably the most exciting thing that we're doing. And you're lucky enough to have Liza Wick here from us who led a big part of our clinical communities at, at Hopkins. You see, we recognized from our Clabsy work that the secret sauce was this peer learning communities. We called it a clinical communities. And we said, like you can say in the UC system, what if we exploded that and created these clinical communities across Johns Hopkins Medicine? So what are they? They are self-governing teams of networks because that's where the power comes from. They're led by clinicians, in our case, always an academic and a community hospital because this trust thing, the community hospitals thought our academic docs were arrogant and didn't respect them. And in many cases, they, that was a justified perception. And so they had to be peers to... to, to uh, uh, learn together. And that was a bit of a rub because we had, for example, a brilliant spine surgeon who said, I'm the world's expert in spine surgery. Why would I ever want a community hospital co-lead? And we said, because it's not about you. It's about improving care. And you can't do that without them. So I know you're brilliant, but you either get a co-lead or I'll get a new spine surgeon. I, this isn't about your ego. And but, so we had to do a fair bit of leadership development of this. They all work on achieving that purpose, and we provide that enabling infrastructure, but they focus on what they want, and we partnered with our supply chain efforts to get them to reduce supply costs, because like you were under a lot of pressure, but it was our CFOs who were working on supply chain, and those of you who are working on this know you get about 15% of the savings from negotiating better contracts. 
you get 85% of the savings from what the clinicians use, and they don't want to hear from the CFO. So the, Ron Worthman, our CFO, and I partnered and said, Ron, we'll have these clinical communities focus on supply chain as long as you agree to two principles. Number one, physician choice will be maintained. I will not force them to use different equipment. I trust that they know that's best, but they'll make that choice fully aware of what the potential savings are. We'll give them the data. And two, they get a piece of the data consistent with Stark and anti-kickback, not in their pocket, but for registries for, to support this analytics. And this year, we're now up to $60 million in supply chain costs being driven out from these efforts. Just I'll briefly share with you, across our health system, transfusions are down about 15%. Here's all of our hospitals, uh, again, all uniformly, not all making the same progress, but most are. Brilliant example of, of linking these communities. Our orthopedic surgeons, I don't know if we have any orthopods in the room, weren't too keen on the literature that you don't need to transfuse this much, but our finance people and the administration had not been able to do it. We simply connected the joint clinical community leads with the transfusion clinical community, sat them down and said, you know, you two need to talk because it looks like there's some information you don't know. And overnight, the orthopods cut their transfusion in, in half. Our hip and knee replacement took about $2,000 off their costs. Here's just an example of some of the things we did for our supply chain efforts. Our spine clinical community made a pathway and took uh, about a day and a half off their length of stay. Liza's great wick, Liza Wick's great work on colorectal with ERAS started with the narrative that when you cut on the bowel, infections are inevitable. And literally, we said, no, no, they are go for zero infections. No one ever thought it would be possible. And now I think you're down to 3% now in many places. Great example, but general surgeons aren't the only ones who operate on the bowel. Our GYN aren't do, but they never talked to the colorectal surgeons, right? All these silos that are so dysfunctional. So Liza, I, and the head of the colorectal group said, you guys need to talk because I think they're doing things that you could learn from. No top-down, but through these peer networks and GYN, Ron, they're not quite as low as our general surgeons, but they're getting there all from, from, from do, doing this. But what I'd like you to do is start thinking about what are the narratives that the UC system are telling that are holding you back? Do you still see quality as a project? Are we still saying harm is inevitable, that we accept high complication rates? Do you have the governance structures in place to support this kind of peer learning and accountability? Do you have the trust building activities and efforts so that your staff are all engaged, so that if you go ask that EVS worker in any of a UC hospital, what job do you do? They say, I save lives, that I prevent infections. And have you instilled this culture of respect and learning? You see, I want to close with what we really learned was the secret sauce of reducing these infections. The secret sauce. And it boils down to what the psychologist Barbara Friedrichsen calls love. And by love, she doesn't mean a 50-year marriage. She studies the biology of love. It's really fascinating stuff about oxytocin. And what she found is love is micro-moments of positive connection between two or more people. Micro-moments. I feel warm towards you. 
you feel warm towards me and we generate energy like an avatar where they all held hands under the tree and they vibrate, right? You could literally feel that energy. It's that gentle smile to a colleague who made a mistake. It's walking down the hall and saying thank you to the housekeeper who's helping keeping things safe, right? It's that respectful smile for a homeless person who's on the streets because what we see is a big change that you're all embarking on is the sum of a thousand small ones and every one of those is facilitated by these scores of micro-moments that, that, that you build. It's really that simple to build these micro-moments. And they, my friends, are infectious. The sociology literature is quite clear. You put a jerk in the room, everyone else is more likely to be a jerk and their friends and their friends. But you put these micro-moments and it spreads. I'll close with the story of how these micro-moments spread. Like your ICUs, in our hospital on Sunday morning, the intensivist usually stops to buy bagels or Dunkin' Donuts for the staff in the ICU. And I stop at a Dunkin' Donuts that sits on Guilford Avenue under a highway in Baltimore. And there's some steam vents from the subways underneath it. And so homeless people congregate there because it's protected from the rain and it's warm. So on any Sunday morning, Dunkin' Donuts is about half homeless people and half people going about their jobs, cops, Sunday school teachers, nurses, doctors. And I'm in line, it was literally just about a year ago now, it was just before Valentine's Day, and there was a homeless couple in front of me. Can't say I've seen a couple before who were homeless, but they were clearly in love, dirty, they smelled, but deeply in love. And they were trying to save see if they had enough money to buy the heart-shaped donut with pink frosting that Dunkin' Donuts releases at the holidays. And they were a nickel short. And the woman turns around and says, hey, could you give me a nickel? And here I am feeling quite guilty for lack of social justice because this is probably the only meal they're going to have in a day or multiple days, and I'm buying food for people who clearly don't need food. So I said, you know, I'm getting an order. Why don't you just go order whatever you want and tell them that i put it on my tab. So they go up in order, and the cashier refused to take their order because they must have thought they were going to stiff them because they don't have any money. He said, you can't order all this food. You can't pay for it. And the guy made a scene and says, no, no, no. The guy behind me is buying me breakfast and said it kind of loudly. And I said, yes, I'm buying it for breakfast. They could order whatever they want. Well, there was a nurse standing next to me and says, what a cool idea, and turns to the homeless person next to her and said, could I buy you breakfast? There was a cop next to her and said, hey, could I buy you next to breakfast, a homeless person? There was a Sunday school teacher behind her who bought a homeless person breakfast, and literally within 30 seconds, this love cascade, these micro moments went through seven people deep. I was incredibly, incredibly moved. I was walking out, and the couple was having their breakfast, and the guy said, could you, uh, we talked to you for a second, and I said, sure. And he said, you know, I'm not a nobody. I just made some bad decisions. I said, I believe you're not a nobody. And I believe so much you're not a nobody that do me a favor. When you make it, buy somebody else breakfast. He said, okay, great, you got it. Two months ago, I walk in Dunkin' Donuts. The cashier says, hey, some guy left you this note. Crinkled up piece of paper, written in pencil. I bought somebody breakfast. And folks, that's the kind of change that you're going to need to drive this because it, this sounds like big ideas, but the reality is it all begins with these little micro moments because I believe the question that this little girl's mom asked me is she's less likely to die. She's asking every one of you, and she deserves an answer. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.